what were we singing? Now, if we're honest, when it comes to music, honesty is another word for confession. Confession is saying the same thing as God says, that's honesty. Most of us, when we sing, are more concerned with the style of the song than the words. We live in a culture where style trumps substance on many levels. Now think about the first song we sang. I mean, here were some of the words taken right out of Scripture. My soul magnifies the Lord. He has done great things for me. Of his government there will be no end. He'll establish it with righteousness. And he shall reign on David's throne, and his name shall be from this day on Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father. I mean, think about the truth of those words we sang in the context of what we live in our world. Politically, economically, socially. You know, last week, I talked briefly about a vision of Christ sitting at the right hand of God, interceding, building a place for us. And there's no Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae. There's no bailout needed. There's no property taxes. Amen? But there's this vision of Christ. And how we see Christ will dictate how we live. How we see Christ will dictate what we listen for, what we watch for. And if you're visiting with us this morning... We've been looking at the 400 silent years and comparing that today where we kind of live in what you might call the 2,000 silent years. It's not that God stopped speaking, but the written word, the prophets were stopped. But during those 400 years of silence, we see a culture in the Jewish community longing for Messiah. And that longing was true and accurate. It was something they were to long for. But the vision of that Messiah shaped their desires. And by the time Christ comes onto the scene, there was about 20, at least we know of, 25 people who claimed to be the Messiah. So he was one option among many. And what they longed for was a God of order. They wanted a God of formulas that says, if I live right, then I'll get the pony. They wanted a God who would bring political victory. And that was on two levels. It wasn't necessarily that they overthrew Rome, but they themselves would hold key positions in Rome. But then again, they were open to Christ, the Messiah, overthrowing the government and establishing new leadership. And what they came to believe was that God would separate and create a subculture from the rest of the world, and their subculture would set standards for the rest of the world. I mean, that was part of what their desire was for, and it shaped their Messiah. Now, here's a principle I want you to write down. Our desires are born out of our vision of Christ. Now, for those that like three-point Baptists, I'm not one of those. You found that out. And this morning, I'm a one-point Baptist, okay? This is it. This is the main point. This is what I want you to think about. You see, what and who we choose to listen to, what and who we watch, will dictate the desires of our hearts. And our desires control our hearts. 
In fact, what we desire for is an indicator of who we are listening to and who we are watching for. So I want to talk about yearning or desiring God this morning. See, our desires shape our decisions. The year was 1620. The month was September. Approximately 100 people set sail for a new land because they wanted economic and religious freedom. They lived under a monarch. His name was King James I. That was who authorized the King James Bible. But he had oppressed religious freedom. And they arrived at this new land in December. That first winter, over half died. But their vision, their desires caused them to risk life and death. And they made that choice freely. And history tells us other people followed them. And more people followed them. And it formed what we now call America. So I'm curious this morning what our desiring God, our yearning for God, until he comes and we see him face to face, What does that cause us to risk? Now, when you talk about desires, it's quite clear in Scripture that as finite, limited human beings, we only have so much capacity for desire. It's not an unlimited capacity. You kind of have one and not the other. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 6, 24. No man or no one can serve two masters, for he that... Hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he concludes with this, and it's curious that he applies this in his own culture. You cannot serve God and money. But you see the contrasts. Hate and love, devotion, despising. You only give your life to one. He made us that way. We have a single eye he talks about. And he points out you cannot love God and money. Now, we know that the love of money distorts life. In fact, the love of money, not money, but the love of money distorts life to all kinds of evil. Paul writes this to Timothy, who was a young pastor in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. And he's talking to Timothy, he's talking to the church. And here's what he says, because we love money so much, we change the verse. We demonize money, and people are gifted at generating massive amounts of money, and we exclude ourselves. Why? Because we don't think we have very much. Have you ever noticed that there's always somebody else that has more than you do? And they're rich and you're not? And because we love money, we excuse ourselves from being generous of what God has blessed us with because others have more than us. And sometimes we think they do. We can't read minds. We can't read their bank accounts. We don't know, but we think they do. But here's what Jesus said. Because we love money, the desires that occupy the church are not those of Christ. You cannot serve two masters. That's the point I'm trying to make. And the love of money has become the predominant addiction in America. In the Old Testament, 
we call addiction idols. Idols are things that take over our lives. And James talks about this. When he talks about desires in James 4, here's what he says in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? I mean, that's not the desire that God has for his son's church. Is it not this, that your passions, your desires, your yearning are at war within you? And then he talks about how we murder each other and fight each other and quarrel with each other. And we we ask wrongly because our passions are not the passion of Christ. And he says that we're an adulterous people. And then he says this in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. In verse 8, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. In verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. But let me kind of paraphrase what he's saying. He says, church, your desires are messed up. It's why you fight. It's why you have petty arguments that turn into massive disputes that you end up being violent to each other. It's why you use words against each other. It's why you speculate and you think horrible things. And James says, the problem is we're spoiled children. But he says there's a better alternative. When you read the context of James 4, he says, let God work his desires in you. Now, what's the plan? I want you to look around. You're looking around? Uh, You realize you're the plan. (laughs) And you want the good news? There is no other plan. And if we desire the church to matter, then we must live out the desires that matter to God. And we cannot invent Christian priorities that are not part of Christ himself. In Jesus' day, they said things like this, don't touch lepers, dress this way, monitor your actions and words. In fact, they had 613 rules that monitored their actions and words, especially on the Sabbath. And things that were really important, and things they thought were really important, really removed themselves from the desires that God wanted them to have. In other words, God had very little interest in the things they had interest in. And when you read the New Testament, And I've heard people say this. It's almost like Jesus was intentionally trying to be offensive to the religious leaders. But that's not his heart. His heart was, he was trying to show them what the heart of God was. It just happened to be against what they said was the heart of God. So he went touching lepers. And he went violating the Sabbath by healing people on the Sabbath. And he hung out with pagan people that they said you shouldn't associate with. But that was the heart of God. So what is it you measure the church by? I hear people say all the time, oh, oh, that's a Bible-believing church. I want to ask the question, is it a Bible-living church? I mean, right doctrine is saying the right words. Actually, right doctrine is living the right words. But we reduce it down to knowing a set of facts, knowing the information, and making sure that it is biblically accurate according to the Greek and Hebrew. 
I have to admit I'm astonished, and since I've been doing this for a long time, I'm a curious sort, and I love asking people why they go to church. I remember one person, this is what they told me. They said, I want to find a place where after the service I feel guilty, bad about myself, and judged. They said, it wasn't a service if I don't walk away feeling bad. Another person said this, with my life right now, I'm so busy, I'm so frantic, I just want a church where I can disconnect from my life and go when I want to go. Here's another. Pastor, I love coming to church. I can sit and relax and not think about a thing. Now here's the paradox. Her name was Grace. And the list goes on and on. You know, someone wants to find a church that preaches the King James. Somebody wants to find a church that doesn't expect anything from me. Somebody wants to find a church that the Holy Spirit is expressed this way or this kind of music. Style over substance. Now, in my humanity, okay, you realize I'm human. I'm like you are. I'm flesh and blood. I have good days and bad days. Here's what I'd like to say to some people on a bad day. And uh, none of you, because you guys are just so gracious and so loving. (laughs) Got to bring that up front. None of you. But I remember a guy that was hypercritical because I preached in the wrong translation. I wore a tie. He called it a dog's tongue. And, you know, it was just a whole set of expectations. And on a bad day, here's what I wanted to say. I didn't say it, but I wanted to say it. Oh, I get it. You want to choose a church for you without any consideration for anyone else, especially those outside the kingdom. I confess that, just so you know. We have it backwards, don't we? The church is called to live out the desires of God through his son, Jesus Christ. The church is called out from our self-indulgence to serving. Our church is called out of our narcissistic behavior to compassion. Our church is called out of self to this world. Now, for those that were raised in church, one of the verses we learned when we were kids, and we have little stars to prove it or whatever you got, whether it was stickers or whatnot, it was John 3.16. And many of us remember that verse. So for those that were raised in church, remember that verse, say it with me, okay? And say it in the translation you learned. Probably most of us learned it in the King James. So say it with me. Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's God's motivational core. He left the comforts of heaven. He entered a dark, sinful world. He stripped himself of the God stuff. He took on flesh and bones. He became a helpless little child, and he walked among us. It's more than just a quaint little verse that we pray a prayer and we're in. It talks about a lifestyle. It talks about setting apart our desires and allowing God's desires to capture our hearts and our minds. It talks about what do we yearn for? And it really says that our desires are born out of the vision that we have for Christ. Now, GBC, if you didn't know this, I'm going to tell you. We will get a lot of things wrong. But this is our core. 
John 3.16. This is why we do what we do. So here is what I want you to consider as we spend time worshiping together, celebrating this Christmas season. It's a question. Are Jesus and I really interested in the same things? Are Jesus and I really interested in the same things? What was Jesus interested in? Now, there's clues everywhere. In fact, it's more than just a clue. And remember what I said last week when we read some verses in Revelation? I mean, this, is, might, this might not be what you think about in terms of desire, but I want to unpack this because of where we're at in our culture today. In Revelation 19, verse 11, here's what it says. I saw heaven, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, With justice, he judges and makes war. Think about his desire for justice. I realize that's a hot word today. In our culture, it means everything and nothing at the same time. Now, when I use the word justice, some of you already have your suspicious on alert, saying, okay, he's going to go down this road. There's others that are hoping I'm going to go into the whole social gospel thing. In our culture, on one hand, we say, don't judge me. On the other hand, those same people want others judged harshly if they don't believe the way they believe. People say today, I want my freedom, but you can't have your freedom if it offends me. And it's why in our culture, you can curse all you want, freedom of speech. But don't dare say Merry Christmas in some context because you might offend somebody. This whole issue of justice and fairness. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. Deuteronomy 16, 20, follow justice and justice alone. Isaiah 1, verse 17, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widows. Now there's a huge confusion today over fairness, and justice. And our desires are wrapped into that. But if our desires are that of Christ, we have to understand how Christ views fairness and justice. Amen? Christ physically coming to earth, was it fair? Absolutely not. That was not fair for God to come to this earth. To give his life for a people who did not recognize him, who were ungrateful and unthankful, to give his life for a people who were chasing a cultural version of the Messiah? Was it just? Absolutely. Because sin requires a payment. Now, what's interesting about justice, it's mainly an Old Testament theme. It's found 132 times in Scripture. 116 times it's found in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's used eight times by Jesus. In fact, he's quoting the Old Testament. Eight other times it's found by other writers, and again, they quote the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, we have a predominant theme of grace. Is grace fair? Absolutely not. Is grace just? Absolutely. See, fairness centers itself on our desires, 
our sense of entitlement, our sense of culture. Fairness is perceived very differently in India, in Russia, in China, in Zimbabwe. But fairness caters to cultural opinions, desires, and ideas. When Christ talks about the desire for justice, it transcends culture. It's bound in love and faith. And all this controversy, all these definitions are so far away from a God-centered core ideology, we've got to be very careful we don't fall into the rhetoric of our day. A lot of times people talk about justice and judging, and I heard a great explanation of what judging means this past week. Let me give it to you. You judge someone when you withhold love and forgiveness. You can write that down. It wasn't mine. (laughs) When you judge someone, you withhold love and forgiveness. So we can have disagreements. We can... Say, you're wrong, but when you withhold love and forgiveness, when you push people away, that's the true meaning of judging. Not this, well, you got to accept my behavior and approve of my behavior if you're not going to judge me. I think about this whole fairness. Is it fair that countries require people to spend enormous amounts of money to adopt children who have no parents? I mean, if you seek to adopt a child from a third world country or country overseas, it's about $30,000 now. Is that fair? Absolutely not. See, it's an issue of justice. That we do it anyway? (laughs) Absolutely. Think for a moment about the physical body of Christ, this whole baby deal. What was his body used for? What was the goal? Why did he exist? And what did God yearn for? What did God desire? Think about those three questions. And then think about the body of Christ that we call the church. What's its goal? Why does it exist? What does God yearn for? And do we yearn for the same kinds of things? Can you ever imagine Jesus establishing a community that cared more about themselves and lived the way they did than a mission greater than themselves. Can you imagine Christ in unfairness coming to this earth, but in justice because sin requires a payment, building a body that's focused more on their needs than the needs of humanity? Now I want to share something with you. And hopefully it's just going to blow you away. I hope it blows your mind. Because Jesus is leaving this earth. And what do the disciples do? They argue with him. They said, you can't do this. We're not going to let this happen. You ever argue with God saying, you can't do it this way? But here's what Jesus says to them. In the midst, they're saying, Jesus, you can't do this. In John 14, verse 12, he says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. And, I mean, if he stopped there, they should have said, wow. But he goes on. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. See, we get to 
have the desire and live the desire of justice because he now is at the right hand of his father. Let me share a story of how this works. I know there's controversy over Bible translations and people like to argue which one's the best and all those kinds of things. We are privileged to be able to read the Bible in our own language. But there's even greater controversy over internet Bibles. You know, some people say, well, if I can't hold my hands, it's really not a Bible. But, you know, you see people pulling up their little phones and their, their iPads right down there, and they're pulling up the verses. Church in Oklahoma created an app for their church and their church alone. It's called Version. Anybody have it on there? Yeah, we got it. What's kind of cool is it has multiple translations. But what's happened is, is this has been translated in multiple languages. Believe it or not, it now has over 200 million installs. That means people installing them on their cell phones. But here's what's really cool. Since 2013, because they translated in Iran, Iranian, Iranian language, the downloads in Iran are up 1,886%. I mean, God is using something that kind of 20 years ago, saying, what, an electronic Bible on what, your cell phone? You know, who's the nutcase? And think about what God's doing and how God's using things. So let me challenge you this morning. What's necessary for justice is this thing we call church. And this thing we call church, we need to learn to practice what God desires for his son and what his son desires for this world. That's why we exist. It's the only reason we're still here. If it was all about us, he'd take us home the moment we're converted. But his plan is to allow us in our humanity, to allow us in our messiness, to allow us in all the stuff that we get wrong, to be light to a world that's dark. I mean, that's an incredible miracle, isn't it? I want you to listen to something I'm going to read in Acts 4, and then you'll see where I'm going. Early church, here's what was happening. On the release, okay, that means they were in prison. Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and others had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you have made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do nations rage and people plot in vain? The king of the earth take their stand. The rulers gather together against the Lord, against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, let me translate this. The translation is this way. Things are really messed up. They came after you. They killed you. Now they're after us. But you are all powerful. You created everything. Now, in this context... What do you think they prayed for next? 
What would you pray for? Lord, save us. Lord, take them out. Now, if you're a pacifist, you might say, Lord, don't kill them, but hurt them really, really bad. Get us out of here now. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. What would have you prayed for if you're in a messy situation? They're after your life. They're after your kids. They're after your relatives. And they want to harm you, put you in prison. They want to kill you. What would you pray for? Here's what they prayed for, verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They didn't pray for their safety. They didn't pray for the demise of their enemies. They prayed for courage. Now, I openly confess that I do not want to pastor an institutional American church. Rather, I want to be part of a catalytic community, one that loves the way Christ loves, one that goes beyond our preferences and conveniences, one that risks life itself, one that creates experiences that we actually need him, that the only way we're going to get out of this is through God. And the only way we can pull this off is God has to show up. I want to be part of a church that's involved in a life and death struggle for the souls of humanity, where minds and hearts will get broken and it will get messy. It's my prayer that that's what you want to be part of as well. Now, there are some of you here this morning, when you think about courage, it's time to trade in your addictions for desiring God. And there's acceptable addictions, there is illegal addictions, and addictions and addiction, and idols and idol. It captures your heart, it enslaves you, you are its master. And he's calling you this morning. The question is, are you listening? Are you watching for him? And so for those that need to make that choice of following Christ, those who have never made that choice, I'm going to ask you to make that choice right now. I know we always kind of close our eyes and bow our heads. and No, let's do the courage thing this morning. Because this is a safe place to do this, by the way. I mean, you do it, you got an instantaneous couple hundred people praying for you, Okay. So if you're here this morning, you need to make that choice. I want you to stand up. We're going to get someone with you, and we're going to do this right this morning. So is there anybody here that wants to make that choice? There's one. There's two. Okay. Take her with. Go pray somewhere. I got a lady down here that we need somebody with. Okay. Here we go. She's coming to get you, and Tim will help. So go out back. Meet Tim Carr. Anyone else? Now, here's going to be a tougher question for many of us. For others that are here this morning, if you need to trade in your lukewarmness, If your hearts have been diluted because your desires have been after other kinds of things. If the desires of God have been diluted by the desires of this world, that those idols have taken over and Christ has become very dim.
I think about the letter to the churches of Revelation and Jesus to the one said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It was written to the church. That wasn't written to people outside the church. That was written to the church because they shut them outside. If that's you this morning and you want to have the courage to stand up saying, I need prayer because I need to trade in the desires of this world for the desires of Christ. I have grown lukewarm and I need to get hot again. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to pray for you. So if you're here this morning and that's your choice you have to make, I'm asking you to stand right now. Okay? People standing? Others? This just isn't a balcony exercise. This is down here as well. Okay, let's all stand together. I'm going to pray for you. Then we're going to pray together a prayer for courage. Father God, I pray for those that have stood to accept Christ, for those that said, you know what, I've just been so shallow and so lukewarm that I need to activate my faith. May your Holy Spirit do an incredible work. And may you instill in all of us a heart that is hot for you. May the desires that you have for the church be our desires. May we not trade them for anything else. You are King of King and Lord of Lords, and we want to live that way. And we want the peace which passes all understanding. We want the joy that we sing about. In the midst of the world, we know it's messed up because we're here. But do your work. Do your light deal. Use us in ways that we cannot even imagine. Because you promised that in John. And you told your disciples they're going to do greater things. Help us to see things the way you see them. And not allow this world to dilute any definitions of what you call us to be. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. Just remain standing. I'm going to ask the group to come up. We're going to sing. But I want us to pray this prayer together. It's a prayer of courage. And I want this to be our prayer at GBC. So pray with me. Give us the courage to believe that your ways are better than our ways. Give us the courage to arrange our desires, to align themselves with your desires. Give us the courage to think and do the right thing. Give us the courage to have outrageous generosity. Give us the courage to live with our eyes wide open to you. Give us the courage to worship to an audience of one and to do so in spirit and in truth. Amen.